You are listening to EE Times on air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Professor Malika Pavan, who designs neural systems from the circuit level up at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich. You'll find out the role that memristors are playing in the systems she designs, why neural circuits need to operate at different timescales, and why copying some features of biological dendrites could add computational power to silicon brains. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. TensTorrent gains momentum in Asia with Rapidus partnership. TensTorrent and Rapidus have partnered to jointly develop semiconductor IP for AI in the device based on two nanometer logic semiconductors. Experts sound alarm about manufacturing design data security. Security experts are advising execs to closely guard against data leaks to better protect critical manufacturing design data. Ford walks fine line as it builds Gigafactory with CATL. While many U.S. automakers haven't faced criticism over sourcing EV batteries from China, lawmakers have questioned the Ford CATL coupling. Now back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sunny will explore the benefits of adding memory stores to neural systems with Professor Melika Pavent from the Institute of Neuroinformatics, known as INI. After the interview, we will be talking to Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Thanks, Julia. Melika is head of the Emergent Intelligent Substrates Lab at INI. Her group is focused on integrating silicon and resistive memory technologies to emulate brain circuits working at different hierarchical levels. The vision is to build real-time processing and learning systems across multiple timescales. There are links to her work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met Malika at her office in the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich. Malika Pavand, welcome to Brains and Machines. I wanted to start by asking you about your technical background and what got you interested in neuromorphic engineering. Okay, so thanks a lot, Sunny, for, for talking to me. It's a pleasure. So I have a background in electrical and computer engineering, so bachelor's, master's, and PhD. Although I'm an engineer, I was always very much interested in psychology. And when I was a teenager, I was always reading this books on philosophy of mind. And at some point, I always wanted to go back to this curiosity I had about the mind. And when I wanted to start my PhD, I was talking to my advisor, Luke uh, Theogarajan, who is at UC Santa Barbara. And, and then he was like, okay, so what are you interested in? And I was like, I was always very good at physics and I like math, but I also have this thing, my burning interest. And, and then he was like, oh, actually, there is this new project that we have. It was a, there was a MURI project in the U.S. It was between multiple universities that was on using resistive memory, which at that time was still very immature and very no- novel concept. 
Dmitry Strukov, who was uh, the first author of this, that first paper, The Missing Memister Found, who brought uh, a lot of attention to Memisters. He was at UC Santa Barbara, and there was a, the Muri project was with him and with Luke and a bunch of other people. Anyway, so um, he was like, we have this project, and there's, there's this field of neuromorphic engineering, and it seems like you would be interested in it. So then I, I got very curious, and he gave me the thesis of Misha Mahowald, and then I started reading the thesis, and I just immediately fell in love with this entire field. And I started digging into Misha and her work and what, what led to neuromorphic engineering. And I found also Institute of Neuroinformatics, which I'm very lucky to work at currently. And so I started designing... At that point, this resistive memory was very immature, so they were still like at the level of single cells that people were, like material scientists were still developing at the university nanofabs. So there was like a few devices that were working, like different materials, and we were trying to build like a, a CMOS silicon-based chip that can interface with these um, membristors. To, to program them, to read from them, to decode them. So we we started designing just a normal memory chip, conventional. And yeah, so we, we finished that chip and they post-processed resistive memory on top of that silicon chip. And that was a very successful project because there were different labs that could post-process their memristors on top. And then using CMOS circuits, we could program and read them. Just before we go on, so some people won't really understand fully what memristors are and why they're important. So why don't you just take a minute and explain what they are? So resistive memory are these kind of novel emerging non-volatile memory devices. So you can think of them as resistors that have memory. They're like different material stacks and different type of resistive memory that are each based on a different resistive switching so they could be based on different physical phenomena. Usually they're, they have two electrodes with the resistive material in between. And then the idea is that the resistance between these electrodes change based on the application of, a, of an electric pulse. And that application of that electric pulse changes the resistance of this material in a non-volatile way. From a computer science point of view, like if you're looking at not as a device physicist, but more from a pragmatic point of view, what are the properties of these memristors that make them good for computing? Mm -hmm. So they are, first, they're non-volatile, as I said. They're very small, so they're, they're, their size could go to nanometer scale. They could be integrated on top of the CMOS chips, so they don't take silicon real estate, which is something everybody likes because silicon real estate is expensive. Then they have, each device has multiple states. C CMOS memories, usually they are binary, so you can have two states per memory cell. And with the resistive memory, you can have multiple. And they also have some inherent physics, uh, which are which kind of make them interesting for maybe unconventional computing, right? So they have inherent stochasticity, they have internal dynamics, they have variability, which can be also exploited for unconventional computing. Great. So let's just park memristors for a minute. You've now been in the field for a long time and have been able to develop a sort of new vision for what you think is important in the field and the structure of neural systems. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it works on different size and length scales? Yeah, so I am 
driven very much by this structure-function relationship that exists in the brain. So in the brain, basically the physics of the brain and the structure of the substrate is what gives rise to computation. There's no operating system that runs on the computer. There is the algorithm is the structure. And that really fascinates me. And what is interesting is that this structure seems to be at every hierarchical level of the brain. If you zoom in to ion channels, you see them. If you if you zoom out to the cortical system, to the cortex, you see a lot of structure. If you go to the peripheral system, you see a lot of structure, and that structure is what gives us to the computation. I have tried to think about that and see how that can be useful as a... Um, inductive bias, if you want, in computing, right? So, you know, the structure of a neuron has, you know, the, the neuron has a dendritic arbor. It does integration at different timescales. It has synapses that also detect features on the dendritic arbor. And there's a lot of nonlinearity on how these information, this filtering gets combined. And then when you go at a larger scale, have you when you when you connect these dendrites, how that gives rise to the population of neurons and the connectivity structure between these neuronal populations that gives rise to specific computational graphs, for example, small world connectivity. So I have basically tried to mimic this and use this as an inductive bias in the systems that I built. Okay, so explain how you put those two together, how you take the memristors and start using them to fulfill this vision of these multi-scale neural structures. So uh, I see memristors as a knob that can change the, the structure of, of electronic substrate. And so I have realized that if, if we incorporate this um, resistive memory, as this changing knob into the design of synapses, neurons, dendritic arbors, and connectivity, then we also ha have this possibility of changing the, the structure of these computational primitives at different spatial scales. And, and by having these self-organize and change themselves based on the input they receive at different timescales, have like systems that can morph to the input they receive. They're resistors that remember what happened to them in their lives. Exactly. Right? So your sort of philosophy of how to design these systems is to imagine them as a physical system that's physically evolving based on what's happening to it. And that is the algorithm that's being performed, is just literally they're following the laws of physics. And that's one of the basic principles of neuromorphic computation, isn't it? Is that it's let the physics do the computing. Yeah, be yeah. as close as possible to the physics, yeah. So can you give us some practical examples of how you've built that into systems? We have built, so let's say synaptic cross-border arrays. It's the kind of the mainstream way of building or using resistive memory. So the crossbar is basically columns that receive the input and then rows that, that collect the outputs and in the intersection of these columns and rows, you have a memory cell. And that memory cell is basically holding or storing the, the weight parameters or synaptic parameters of the system. Now, you can change this resistance based on a system that is 
that is a learning system that is changing its, for example, synaptic parameters by doing applying, for example, algorithms to change the synapses. And you can, for example, calculate in a supervised learning scenario, you have a population of neurons that are supposed to do something, but then they're doing something else. And then you can find a mismatch between the target and the, the current activity, create update signals that then can change these resistances. And these are circuits that we have worked with and we have built this synaptic arrays and online learning systems using technology, for example, from Sealeti, that it's like an integrated CMOS with hafnium oxide-based resistive memory. And then we have built neurons and use resistive memory to implement the, the parameters of neurons. So a neuron has many parameters. So if you think of also just a simple Licky integrated fire neuron, it has a time constant, it has threshold, it has refractory period, it has a gain. And we have implemented a neuron with a resistive memory that kind of implements all of these parameters. Now, the great thing about this is manifold. One is that usually the parameters of the neurons on anamorphic chips are, are stored in a centralized memory. So basically, when it's centralized in the memory, that means that you're still bounded by the von Neumann bottleneck. So you're shuttling information back and forth between your neurons and your memory. Exactly. So the parameters of the neurons are, are in a memory. Then when the neuron wants to do the computation, quote unquote, it has to go to the memory, read the parameters and come back. So that's one problem that this system solves, that you're, you basically have a local memory that you, and the neuron has local parameters like right there. The second thing which is great about it is that it's in neuromorphic systems, you usually have to have a population of neurons sharing the same parameters because of this, because you have a memory and you, and then you, you share this memory between a population of neurons. If when that's the case, you're limited by how much you can calibrate. If you had a large number of neurons and it's having to shuttle back and forth between memory, then you'd need a huge bandwidth that, that you wouldn't be able to support. So that's why you're having to share these weights, right? right? So you're, ma you're making compromises on the performance. Exactly. And then also, you've, you've probably also heard about this problem with the, or a quote-unquote problem. You can, you can look at it also as a feature, but the analog systems, for example, have a variability from neuron to neuron. And the reason why there's variability is because each transistor is different from other transistor. And if you're using the same quote-unquote bias or parameter for the neuron population where each transistor is different, that gives rise to, to mismatch. But if you have each neuron calibrated on, on its own, has its own parameters, and it reorganizes its own parameters based on the input, and the properties it has after fabrication, then you don't have any of these problems. And it also enables on learning the parameters of the neuron. For example, in, in a nature communication paper that we published last year, we saw that if we apply, for example, and this type of homeostatic plasticity inspired by the brain, which is basically a type of negative feedback in the brain that tries to keep the, the activity of the neuron in a plausible range. So not too overactive and not too underactive, because if it's overactive, it's always dominating the computation. It's basically always response to everything. There is no information about the firing of this neuron because it's always firing. 
And if it's underactive, it's also not being part of the computation. So neurons apply this negative feedback to keep the, the activity of the neuron in a plausible range. And you can change the parameters of the neurons, and neurons can change in their own parameters in a self-organized way to make sure they're always in this plausible range. And we have shown that is very important for self-organizing recurrent networks. Yeah, so that's the synaptic part and the neural part of the story. And then we've also incorporated resistive memory in dendrites as the next level of the spatial hierarchy. We have made this more complex neural model, so moving away from the LIF, the leaky integrated fire neuron, and then treating the neuron as a multi-compartment computational unit. And each compartment can basically integrate information at different time scale. And each compartment or dendritic branch has synapses that are more complex. So they have both a spatial variable, which is the weight, which we always have in all neural networks, but also a temporal variable that is delay. And we implement both the weights and the delays with resistive memory. Now, what we have figured out there, which, is, which was very interesting, was that when you want to do real-time sensory processing, you would want to have kind of a matched filtered system. So if you want to process speech, you want to process it with the same type of filters that have the same frequency range as the frequency of speech. Uh, these are usually very slow signals, like real-world signals are usually very slow. So you want to have filters that are with low cutoff, right? What usually what we do is to want to implement these kind of long time constants in the order of milliseconds or hundreds of milliseconds or seconds on chip. But that is very difficult to do because uh, you need large capacitors in order to make larger time constants. And capacitors are very expensive on chip because they, they take a large area. Mm. What usually people do is to create this recurrent networks, right? To reverberate information through the short-term memory of the system, right? So create this short-term memory through recurrent connections to, to process these signals. But if we want to use this short-term memory, that means that we should always have neurons continuously firing in order to re reverberate this information. And that, that draws a lot of power. Now, if we insert the short-term memory instead into delays, and we implement these delays with passive RC circuits, then it is as if we're just inserting passive memory into the system without having to continuously actively creating this short-term memory and drawing power. And that has helped us reduce power consumption by two orders of magnitude. So essentially what you're saying is that it's also a non-volatile way of storing that behavior because if you wanted to do that with recurrence, it's dependent on the activity going through it. But because these systems are physically configured to have that time scale now, I mean, obviously it's going to update as it's learning if it's a learning system, but it's passive. So it just goes straight through. Exactly. It doesn't draw power from, or it doesn't continuously draw power from the power source. Because in order for this reverberation to continue, something has to happen. Like it has to be an activity that is kept. And in order to generate this activity, the, neuron, the neurons have to fire. Because if they don't fire, the activity dies. But in a passive system, you just put a charge in the capacitor and that leaks for whatever the time constant of that filter is. And that's just a passive circuit. 
And then what is also like on top of that, what I found very cool was that, so we want long time constants and because we want long time constants, we were implementing these delay elements with a resistive memory in their high resistive state. Now in the high resistive state, resistive memory is even more variable because there's a filament forming between two electrodes and the kind of geometry of that filament is what tells you what the final resistance is. Now, if the device is in its high resistive state, this filament is very loose. So they're just islands of a filament. And that, that makes it very variable because we have very, we don't have a very good control over how these islands form when the device does not have the filament. So there's a large variability. And that means that we basically have a very wide distribution of resistances and thus delays. And what we realized is that we could train the system in a way to sample from this distribution to pick the, the delays that it likes, which is basically completely analog, right? Because it's, it's, you're just basically using the device variability and you could end up with analog delay, which is good for the system. It's exactly what the, the system might. So we're basically exploiting this variability in resistive memory for a distribution of delays that are good for processing real-time signals. Okay. One of the things I've noticed is when people started talking about memristors, I think it was about 20 years ago when HP did their big announcement, one of the things I noticed was that the neuromorphic community got very excited. They thought of them as being potentially weights, but now they're being talked about for conventional memory or memory in conventional systems. Where do you think they're going to end up being most useful? I mean, if they have this variability, I guess that doesn't matter so much in digital systems. In analog systems, it matters more if you're not doing on-chip learning, if you're trying to do that thing that a lot of people are trying to do, which is where you learn offline and then you're just doing inference on the chip. And so you want everything to be tuned perfectly. Do you have an opinion about where they're going to prove to be the most useful and how that might evolve? Yeah. So the thing is that I think it's about short-term versus long-term. I think in the short-term, they are going to be used as digital memory and what they will be useful for in that sense, because then you might ask, okay, if it's, if it's digital, why just not use SRAM, right? So currently, a big part of the power consumption in AI hardware goes to static power consumption. So memory generally is the centerpiece of AI hardware. Right, It's the most important thing because it's basically storing parameters and the parameters are many in scales like quadratically with the size of the network. So memory is the most important thing. Static power consumption is a big problem in memories and resistive memory will help with that because resistive memory has no static power consumption. The reason why SRAM and DRAM have static power consumption is because they, have, they are volatile, meaning yes. that there's a power there. Mm -hmm. So they're keeping information again through yeah. loops and, and, and so on, and through refreshing. Yeah, so I know you see processing and learning across timescales as critical for progress in this field. When we talked earlier, you pointed out how Giacomo Devery has been an advocate of this approach and has been implementing his designs in subthreshold electronics. Can you tell me what advantage you expect to get by adding memristors to the mix? So I think 
other than their non-volatility, their internal dynamics, I think, is very interesting because it might be a controversial statement. But for me, neuromorphic engineering is about computing time, you know, where time is the center of computation. And if time is the center for computation, then time scales become important, right? And again, to create time scales, you have the problem of either you need to have many many clocks with different frequencies on chip. So basically you need to keep count of time somehow. You can either do it with clock or you can do it physically with like RC systems. Now there's a third way, right? So the problems with these first two, the the clocks, you know, what degree of granularity can you have for clocks? You can have 10 clocks on the system or 20 clocks. If, if If you have a signal that has multiple timescales and is changing over multiple timescales, you need to have a system that provides you with different timescales, a pool of timescales. Or you, you can use like RC systems of, of some sort. And that has its own problems because capacitors are very expensive. Now, the third way is to use basically resistive memory to exploit this internal dynamics. And there's also this kind of new volatile resistive memory that is, that is emerging that is basically their resistance has a time constant. So basically the resistance goes up and then it decays as internal dynamics without consuming anything, right? It's just a bunch of ions that kind of make a filament and then they just go back or they relax back, right? So it's just through relaxation. So I think that in the long term, I think it would be very interesting to think of resistive memory as, as a memory that can also bring a lot of time scales into neuromorphic uh, systems. And of course, also for online learning, like we talked about before, it's like like an op that morphs itself at, in, in different places to, to adapt to the input that it's receiving. So far, I've talked about using resistive memory into synapses, into parameters of the neurons, and to dendritic arbors. But then going in a higher spatial scale, we can also use resistive memory to store the connectivity of a network. For example, when population of neurons want to talk to each other, then we can have, for example, membership routers or like routers that can physically either let neurons communicate or kind of block their communication. And we have also proposed an architecture which is called the mosaic architecture, which does exactly that. So it's the first demonstration of what, if you want to call in-memory routing in neuromorphic systems that is optimized for small world graphs. So basically you have neuronal cores that are densely connected and densely recurrent. And you can think of them as small worlds. And then if these small worlds want to talk to each other, then you can have these members of routers in between that can physically let the spike go or not. And this can also, for example, enable structural plasticity. And this structural plasticity really happens at a much longer time scale, also in the brain. Right? So you have you have like spines, literally, that if there's a lot of communication in the spine, it, it grows, right? And if there, there's no communication at some point, that, that connectivity disappears. Having this kind of physical router can enable imitation of this structural plasticity also on chip. That's a really elegant idea. I, I've often been 
curious about ways that we could do connectivity better. I've never liked the idea that we had little addresses and it seems like a much more neuromorphic way of doing it in the sense that it's physical. Exactly, so, again, physical. So it's non-volatile, it's not dependent on what signal is being sent and that's very interesting. How far do you think we are away from having memristor-based systems that we're actually using in products? If you think about them as, as binary, we're not far away. Actually, in fact, there are chips out there. Micron already use MRAM, for example. The magnetic RAM is already in production, so that's very mature. IBM has it with the PC RAM. Already they're doing in-memory computing with, with PC RAM. Saleti has this chip called Spirit, I think. They're using it with spiking networks. We have built systems that that have the resistive memory as in-memory computing crossbars with spiking recurrent networks. So that is already there. In production, I think IBM is the closest to production. They're really, they're not working with spiking networks, but they're trying to accelerate ANNs, artificial neural networks, with PC RAMs, just using basically their multi-state and their non-volatility. Malika Pavand, thanks for coming on to Brains and Machines. That, that was amazing, Sunny. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Sunny. That was really interesting. And for more about Malika's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. Now, we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Hello, happy to be with you guys again. So I am very happy today because we can finally talk of a successful story of an engineer in Neuromorphic. So Melika just started her lab in Zurich, and I'm always impressed by her incredible way of explaining things clearly. So Melika starts talking about Misha Mauwald, and we all know how much she's important for our community. And she holds somehow the meaning of neuromorphic. And I always thought that, as Malika and you, Sunny, beautifully have said in the interview, that neuromorphic is related to different time scales, nonlinearities, connections among neurons, population coding, and how you elegantly have said, let the physics do the computing. These are the basics principles of neuromorphic. But now I want to ask to Ralph the most difficult question of all, <laughs> because with time, things changed. What does neuromorphic really mean today? So yeah, so it's not the same as it used to be anymore. It's not just physics doing the computation, but we do use software now. We use combinations. We use the mixed signal representation, both analog and digital. So all of that now becomes neuromorphic, right? The, in, the, in the end, it's the inspiration and it's the problem that is being solved that is trying to be done in the way that living organisms do it. I think that would be the way of thinking about it. Another question I have is about the Muri project mentioned by Melika. I understood that underlined multi-sensory uh, processing and decision-making to design closed-loop adaptive algorithms, uh, which is a very interesting and still open topic uh, that we are trying to address in current times. And I want to know if you have any examples or if you know something about that project, so you have any examples or, or works that came out from that project. 
Yeah, so I, I, we've actually worked with Dimitri, the person that she refers to as being the person who developed the chip upon which the memristors were laid and used to demonstrate some ideas of, in learning and so on. MURI is, is usually funded by the, can be by different parts of, of DOD, but it's the ones that I've worked on has been funded by the Office of Naval Research. But from that, essentially, it's usually a group of researchers doing basic research, right? This is very key. It's not applicable to any weapon systems or anything like that. It's just doing basic research, trying to understand a particular problem, right? So Dimitri um, was one of the people who had developed some of the first examples of these resistive networks and how they can be used, you know, to make memories and how it can be used for making connections in neural systems. Later on, when we came uh, to work with him was a DARPA project. Dan Hammerstrom was a program manager, and he was always interested in this notion of neuromorphic engineering. In fact, he built the first digital neuromorphic system ever before True North and Loihi and so on. He had a real machine that was sold. So it was a commercial machine, right? So then at some point, he became a program manager at, at DARPA, and then he had this program called Upside, and Dimitri was part of it. Uh, we, as in Andreas and myself, was part of it as well, and we developed different chips that performed different parts of that computation. So while Dimitri was working on the resistive connective tissue, if you will, that makes it able to create networks, there were others who were thinking about floating gates using transistor floating gates, so more the flash memory kind of scenario to try to replicate the same thing. And then there were us who were looking at more the current base projective field with arrays of neurons. The problem that we were trying to do is trying to implement these hypercolumn circuits that would then be used to solve any generalized problem. So now I have a question that comes spontaneously into my mind. So in this previous week, I was at the ETH having a beautiful session talking about autonomous and adaptive robots. But then the question is, that is always a semantic question, what really adaptive means? Because what we need now is continuous learning and continuous adaptability to the environment. And this comes with embodiment and so on and so forth. What's, uh, what really adaptability means from your point of view for autonomous robots specifically? So, yeah, so, so I suppose one thing is, is that the parameters of the behavior of the system changes due to its interaction with the environment, right? So one example, especially you're using Malika's work, is this notion that as the robot interacts, it, the currents and the signals that are applied to the networks that are causing the interaction or causing the, the action changes because the memories essentially learn as it goes along, right? So the current flows, it creates these filaments as she refers to, and these filaments grows or, or diminish based on the activity that the robot is going through. So adaptation in the sense is, is being able to change parameters then of the behavior of the network. That's one form of adaptation, right? Another form of adaptation is a simpler one, which is the example of if I am tapping on something often, then the sensitivity that I have to that thing that I'm tapping on decreases over time, right? So again, it's automatic gain control that basically says, ah, we've seen this information, we've seen this input too many times now, so it's not as important. So let me turn down the gain. And we see that in, in, in neurons as well, right? Neurons fire very fast, and then as the inputs keep coming the same way, they can slow down, right? So we talk about adaptive neurons in that same way. And then ultimately, in a bigger 
scenario, I would say that attention is another example of adaptation, right? If we've seen something often, then maybe we don't pay attention to it anymore and we look for novelty, we look for new things, right? So we have to basically press the importance of the particular features that we're looking at down and let that go to the side and so that we can let new features come up and be prominent. So that notion of reducing the prominence of previously seen information, that's also a form of adaptation. And that can, again, drive behavior. I'd also like to point out another thing that I don't think we ever really talked about enough in this podcast. I just have recently read a paper that Elisa Donati suggested me. And this paper is coming from Fumiya and it's talking about embodiment and adaptability. And Fumiya Aida. And he's saying no dynamics with a single time scale can explain overall autonomy and adaptability. So saying that with neuromorphic computing, we can handle different timescales. And Melika is talking a lot about this. This means that we are the only one that can be autonomous and adaptable. Is that too much of a claim? <laughs> I'd like to say something quickly on this, which is that I was just at NNPC, which is a sort of neuromorphic and physical computing conference that was held in Hanover in Germany. While I was there, so you can imagine that's lots of physics-y people doing different kinds of computing, basically everything except quantum computing, icing machines and things. While I was there, somebody suggested that I listen to an interview with John Hopfield, famous for the Hopfield networks. I'll put a reference to it on the Brains and Machines website. But it was really nice in that John Hopfield, who must have been 87 when he did this interview, he's 90 now, he was talking about exactly this, exactly the dynamics and exactly the multiple time scales. Obviously, he's another physics person, Julia. Sorry about that. But I think it really puts that idea of the complexity and recurrence and all being absolutely critical. One of the things he was saying is the reason that feedforward networks are so big is because the magic happens in the recurrence. Essentially, it's those loops are doing a lot of work that these feedforward networks cannot handle without just throwing more and more resources at. And of course, this issue of time scale is critical. Uh, I remember talking to uh, other people in robotics about exactly this questions. I think you're absolutely right to raise it. Yes, all loops can be opened, right, and be flattened, right? So in the sense that what takes one couple of neurons and closes it upon itself in order to create a loop can ultimately be flattened and opened and made feed forward. And then you got to basically create connections that goes from the first layer, maybe it skips over an intermediate layer and then gets added upon in the, in the last layer, right? So that means that something that was just now two neurons has to be three layers, right? I think that's exactly what you're referring to, Sunny. this notion that it gets way more complicated if we try to only do feed forward. So the, the good thing about it is that we've been, you know, we as in the community has been thinking about this problem for a long time, right? And 
Malika as well talks about the fact that where that these filaments are formed, the way the memories are formed, you can have multiple different time constants that starts with just a single filament all the way to essentially the whole entire memory of being 100% connective, right? Or 100% uh, resistive, if you will, right? So you, so you can go from, let's say, nanoseconds to multiseconds, right? Because the, it depends on the, on the resistance of that single filament that may be formed. So in the past, whenever we've tried to create uh, these different times of time constants, it's usually been digitally programmed time constants. You should look back at some of the work from late 80s, early 90s. In fact, you know, from the lab that I was when I was a grad student, we built synaptic time constants. But they were big circuits, right? If I remember correctly, like our connective network, I mean, our axon with time constants, were probably the biggest chips in our board. And there were only like 16 synaptic time constants on there, right? But we could program them from fractions of microseconds to seconds, right? But now with the types of circuits that Malika is talking about, in the space of nanometers, you can do all of that. And that is why this area is really interesting, right? She talks as well about, you know, what happens if you not only use these devices for making connections from neuron to neurons, but you make connections from populations to populations. So the projection essentially from one population to another, and you also control which signals get pushed forward by making that connection either low resistance or high resistance, depending on what you're trying to do. So I think that's also a very interesting aspect of using it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy with through wafer vias, that is in 3D integration, these things become a little bit more doable maybe. Yeah. It, in, in a way, the systems that she's talking about ends up looking more and more brain-like because not only do we have a flat interconnects, but now we have vertical 3D interconnects in order to build these networks and make them stick to each other. So in the end, I think it's very cool. The, the bottom line is you've got time constants, you've got connections, you've got pruning capabilities, you've got growth, if you will, of certain connections and throwing out of others. It makes the system ultimately way more biomorphic or neuromorphic as, as any other approach. I just wanted to say that the other thing I really appreciate about uh, Malika's work is that it is properly neuromorphic, that she is trying to do neuromorphic engineering, and she's not just creating memristors. She's not just someone who wants to do anything she can possibly do with memristors. And it does get frustrating seeing people who are claiming to do neuromorphic engineering when Actually, they're just doing memristor engineering, which is fine, which is great, which needs to be done, right? We need better devices. Just because you're working on memristors doesn't make you neuromorphic. I actually saw at this NNPC conference, this guy came up and gave this whole spiel about icing machines and, it, and called it neuromorphic and said, so your icing machine is neuromorphic after all. And so I asked him, what do you mean by neuromorphic? Go getting back to your question, Julia, because we all know that different people have different definitions. So I said, what's your definition of neuromorphic that you think this fits into that definition? And he said, oh, I don't have a definition. And nobody wants to know about that. I'll talk to you after, which incidentally he never did. 
So it's becoming, I guess that's the sincerest form of flattery that people are calling themselves neuromorphic when they've got no business doing so. There have been times when the opposite would have been true. Oh no, we're not neuromorphic. We don't want to be tarred with that brush. The fact that people are wanting to take on that mantle says, I guess, that the community is really succeeding and doing something right. And people can see that we, I say we, but I'm just a journalist. I just get to write about you, that the community is on the brink of success. Well, one thing I was going to say, I think we should also point out that the non-volatile memories and so on. So I, I want to make sure that we don't lose the thread to the work that Jennifer Hassler and company has been doing all this time, right? So Memristas is the new flavor. And cu currently, it's the is a preferred flavor for sure. But remember that that this is starting with Chris DeAureo, crossing with with Jennifer Hassler. They had been looking at ways to implement non-volatile memories that can also change connectivity between different places, can create long-time constants, short-time constants, and so on in very tight circuits as well. Right. The difference is that you're still talking about each element on the scale of transistors, right? You, know, you have to have gates, you have to have source drains, and so on, right? Whereas in the case of memristors, it's structures on the scale of the de of devices. It's like a piece of a transistor as opposed to the entire transistor. And I think that's one of the wins, right? That's one of the reasons why memristors caught the imagination, if you will, of the community and also the memory community, right? I think it was a question that you asked, Annie, about commercialization of memories, right? I think there are actual memories that you can buy that are resistive memories now, you know, in the marketplace. So the digital community has, because you can still make it binary, you can still make it off-on, right? There's nothing that prevents you from doing that. So at the end of the day, we usually progress from the physics, as you say, where memories can be formed in two ways. Either you have capacitors that hold charge, right? or you have material that change the properties, right? So those are the two things, right? Capacitors that hold charge is the old school stuff, you know, and ultimately the floating gates fall in that. And when you have state changes, that's everything from magnetic memories, the spintronics and all that stuff that fit within that group. And then memories fit within that group very nicely as well. I just want to say that I don't think by focusing on memristors that we're trying to in any way diss what came before. I think what we're trying to say is that each new technology allows us to work at a different scale and tackle new problems that we couldn't have dreamt of tackling in the past, right? And that the number of neurons that we can do with memristors is completely different than the number we could have done with what were the floating ones? Gates. The floating yeah, gates, gates, yes, yeah. the floating gates, which I remember when I went to my first Telluride, every morning there was a two hour long how to design your own floating gates lecture, which completely went over my head, I have to tell you. And now there's a little bit more of a separation of thinking, okay, well, these things can be fabricated. What do we do with them? What are we worried about in terms of the architecture? now more, which to me is a level that I can get my head around a lot more simply. Yeah, I, I think another interesting reality of the floating gates versus memory stay is that the floating gate scenario was hard to make work, right? Whereas a memory stay seems to have a shorter pathway to make work. And I think that has also changed the likelihood that folks adopt it and, and do more with it. And that was one of the biggest things, I think.
How do you get folks to adopt it, given the difficulty in how to make it work? So I don't have so much of a hardware background, but I'd like to point out for anyone that doesn't work in our field, the limitations nowadays of the memory stores. I think it's important to clarify this. I would say that one of the big limitations, if you can call it that, is the fact that you have to have special materials, right? It's not the standard thing that is available in every lab and so on. And you have to have the capability of doing post-processing, so putting materials on top of already designed CMOS chips in order to put the layers on top. So that, from a pure microfabrication perspective, that adds a certain difficulty. The other part, I guess I would say, is being able to apply signals to it, right? So one way is to basically just put a current in or put a voltage in, and that in itself changes the property of the material. But one of the things that Malika referred to was supervised learning, right? A teaching signal. So then you have to come up with really funky architectures that allows you to tell which of the memory cells to increase or decrease the resistance from an inter external teaching signal. So that also presents additional complexity in terms of the architecture and, and the way to speak with it and the way to control it. But mainly, I would argue that uh, the harder part is to find the right materials with the right properties and then to cooperate within the CMOS flow. That's the big limitations. And maybe that's why, Sunny, why you go to these conferences and a lot of people are spending just time just talking about the memories because we're still trying to get that part sorted. So did you have any last things, Ralph, that you wanted to talk about? So I think one thing that I would like to maybe point out that is also really cool from her work is being able to not create neurons that are just point neurons, right? Not just the soma but having dendritic aberrations, you know, where computation can take place in the dendrites as well as in the neurons. The neurons end up just collecting information that flows through the dendrites, right? And then ultimately makes a decision. And then that decision is passed on to the next. And the timing of how that decision is passed on to the next also is important for computing, right? So she, she captures all those pieces in her flow, in, in her architecture, and I think that's really important. Let's end it here. Thanks to Sunny for yet another interesting interview and to Ralph for his insightful comments. Next time, Sunny will be taking a break and I will be talking to Simeon Bamford, researcher at the Italian Institute of Technology on neuromorphic tactile sensors. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Malika Pavand of the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Alex Hawley and Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.